The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you, as always, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. To support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. The interview I'm going to be presenting on this episode goes back to the year 2008. This was from the radio days, and I was very elated to be interviewing this man, Irving Burgey, or as he was commonly called, Lord Burgess. Others called him the father of modern Calypso. He wrote some very classic songs. Probably the most famous would be Deo. He also wrote Jamaica Farewell. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him. Sadly, Irving Burgey has passed away at 95 years old. He was born in 1924, Brooklyn, New York. He passed away November 29, 2019 in Queens, New York City. To tell you a little bit about his accomplishments, you could say that Irving Burgey was one of the most important figures in all of popular music. I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but allow me to explain. Irving Burgey was an inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. His songs sold over 100 million copies worldwide. His most successful song, Deo, as I was mentioning, was written for Harry Belafonte and was named a Song of the Century, along with songs like Over the Rainbow. In fact, Burgey wrote eight of the 11 songs, including Jamaica Farewell and I Do Adore Her, on Harry Belafonte's classic album that was just entitled Calypso. That album, Calypso, was the first record in history to sell one million units. It was number one on the Billboard charts for 32 weeks. That was in 1956. Irving Burgey went on to write 34 songs for Harry Belafonte, as well as a few for the Kingston Trio. And in this interview, we talk about his life, his music, and his autobiography, which is called Deo. Many people praised his book, The Autobiography of Irving Burgey, including Maya Angelou, Sidney Poitier, Whoopi Goldberg, and others. I hope you enjoy this interview, and I hope we can all agree Irving Burgey was one of the greatest songwriters in the world. Enjoy. Today we are joined by the legendary composer, author, and musician Irving Burgey. It's my pleasure to welcome Mr. Irving Burgey, known to many as Lord Burgess, to Time After Alan Time. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, pleasure. A pleasure to be here, really. <laughs> I can assure you the pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much. I think most stories are best from the beginning. For those listeners out there that are really entranced by your story, which I'm sure many of them will be, there is an autobiography called Deo, an autobiography of Irving Burgey. Tell us about what your life was like growing up. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My father is from Virginia, and my mother is from Barbados in the West Indies. I grew up going to the public schools way back in the late 20s and 30s in Brooklyn, New York. Didn't really know what was, uh, have any idea what was really going on in the world. And the first time I ever left New York was was uh, when the war broke out in, in 1941. And uh, by the time I was just graduated from high school, they were drafting people in the army and so forth. And so 
So I joined the Army. I served two and a half years in, in China, Burma, India theater during that time. I came out at the age of 21 after the war was over in 1945. And I heard about the uh, GI Bill of Rights, you know. So I decided to go to school. While I was in the Army, I had developed, developed a liking for music in particular. I hadn't really pursued this before, but I did know all the songs and everything on the radio, but I knew them all by heart. There was a fellow in the outfit named Jimmy Houston who started giving me some lessons in music theory, and I, I took to it. So by the time that the war was over, I'd been at it for about a year and a half, and I, I had enough knowledge of theory to be accepted into the Juilliard School of Music in New York. I studied there for two years and uh, learned all the rudiments of music, you know, the theory, harmony, sight singing, air training, dictation, and all that sort of stuff. And then I, I transferred to the University of Arizona and the University of Southern California the year after that and came out as a, as a folk singer because the folk movement was becoming very popular uh, during that time, late 40s. I picked up the guitar and I started learning the ropes, same thing do, so to speak, you know, playing around at various functions and so forth, and hoot nannies and things like that. And then I started uh, putting a group together of my own. I specialized also in the Caribbean, I guess that's because my mother was from the Caribbean and I, and I had a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles and so forth around me that knew a lot about the Caribbean and I used to go on different like boat rides and picnics and so forth with church outings and things like that and you'd find out what's going on or you'd hear a lot of the customs and the rhythms and the styles of the of the Caribbean. I landed a job in New York at the Village Vanguard, which was a famous little club which many, many people have uh, had this got their big start at. There I met the folk singers who teamed up with my group, Louise Bennett from Jamaica. We made quite a hit there. And that's while there I started writing material for the group. A few months later, after sort of knocking around the country as a folk singer, I got an assignment from a friend of um, that I was writing for Harry Belafonte. And they heard my material and they wanted to make a recording of it, which they did. And it became, believe it or not, became the first album in history to sell a million albums. That was in 1956-57. And I had eight of the 11 songs on the album, including those songs were songs like Dale, Jamaica Farewell. <laughs> it became the first million album seller. I started off in, in, a, in a queer way and on top of the business, you know, rather than at the bottom. <laughs> That's a sort of a thumbnail sketch of how I broke into the business. You mentioned earlier about how you had training in musical theory. And the songs that you wrote, they're wonderful songs. And they have stood the test of time. I mean, we had a big celebration in New York, one of the big hotels, the year before last. It celebrated the 50th anniversary of Dale. You know, you hear it everywhere now, in all the stadiums and so forth, and arenas and football fields and 
basketball fields and so forth. All the fans sing it, you know, together. And uh, it's very popular throughout the world, actually. And its, it's popularity hasn't diminished any. It's in its 51st year now. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. How does it feel hearing your music everywhere? It's a good feeling. It's a great feeling. I've been able to travel all over the world in the past 50 years, and it's been everywhere that I've been. You know, I, I hear it. There's probably any, hardly anybody uh, going around that never heard Dale. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Do you think that your study of musical theory and the fact that you took kind of an intellectual look at music, do you think that that may be the reason that these songs are so good? I think it certainly helped. Whenever you approach anything artistically, you have to have a certain amount of what they call talent or feeling for what you're doing. That is something that you're born with. I don't regret one minute all the time that I took the study theory, sight singing, air training, so forth, it's all helped me because I never really started out to be a writer. I started out to be a singer. But I took all these courses to make me a better singer. But it also made me know how to write. I could write. I could think something and write it. You know, just take out a pencil and write it down in notes, which this gave me a great advantage, particularly as as I went into writing, could think of something. I could be anywhere. I don't. I didn't have to be near an instrument. Because of my training, I could think of something and write it down on a piece of paper. And this was a great advantage of being a songwriter. You mentioned earlier the song Deo, and it certainly is a song that is heard in so many places. For example, many of the listeners out there may know that at the Jimmy Buffett concert, when you hear Deo, that means that the concert's about to begin. So I was hoping you could tell us about this song. I first heard the strain of it. It goes back into the folklore of Jamaica. It was used initially as a banana loaded song. Uh, like this, because it said, uh, theme of this, the six hand, seven hand, eight hand bunch was really, they're talking about a, a bunch of bananas. The tally man is the one who counts the, the bunches of bananas that people walk by with them and, and loading the boat, you know, they do all night. Basically, that's where the, the, the idea and the theme originally came. I was wondering, Mr. Burgi, were there any other Calypsonians that influenced your music? Oh, yes, there were a lot. I don't know how much they influenced my music as such. There was people like the Lord Invader that I knew quite well, who was the one who originally wrote the song, Rum and Coca-Cola. There was King Lion, who did um, Matilda. Even the young Sparrow, uh, who I first met back in the 60s in Trinidad. Killer the Hun. These are all early, early um, Calypsonians of note and fame, who really laid the real ground basis of what they called was at that time the Afro-Cubano rhythm and projected as Calypso uh, in, in, originally in Trinidad. And then as of course it spread to, to the other islands. And on recordings then he came up to the United States and spread from there. So tell us about meeting Harry Belafonte. I met 
Harry Belafonte threw his writer bill out of the way, and when Harry heard the music, he was all for it. Uh, we, we were doing a program called the Colgate Comedy Hour. He was doing a, he had a, he had gotten a spot on the Colgate Comedy Hour. They were trying to book the Sullivan Show at that time. And, um, he was given a 20 minute segment. So he organized a little set. And in which about five of my songs were used. That was, uh, in October, as I recall, of, of 1955. The show was a smash. And uh, so Harry was engaged then to uh, the Waldorf Astoria in New York, which was a big, big, big thing. And uh, during that time, we got together and we worked on the album. Uh, the album finished uh, toward the end of October, and actually it was produced on June 1st of the next year. And everybody had high hopes for it, but nobody thought uh, at that time... People sold 200,000 records, 300,000 records, and they thought it was really a bang. So RCA had envisioned it selling a quarter of a million albums. But, but when the thing went over the million mark, it just blew everybody's mind. It was the first time that's ever happened. Wow, that is amazing. What did you think of Mr. Belafonte when you had met him? Oh, he was, he was red hot at the time. I mean, he was... He was regarded as the most handsome man in the world. He was had he was young and athletic, and the women just went crazy. He uh, when he when he walked out on the stage, you know, it was a whole new deal. <laughs> it also had other aspects involved with it, in the fact that it, it was during the time of the beginning stages of the civil rights movement. And there was a, a, a lot of awakening to civil rights in, in America, um, all over America. There were demonstrations and there were all kinds of things going on, which finally culminated, of course, in the, in the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. He's still keeping his name out there, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, it won't go away anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about one of the songs that you wrote, and one of which became Harry Belafonte's theme song, and that's Jamaica Farewell. My partner in the radio show, Jeff Pike, is a musician, and the very first song he ever sang, and it was recorded when he was just a little boy, you know, just like five or six years old, was Jamaica Farewell. So tell us about that song. That is certainly a fantastic song. Well, it's a, I think it's a fantastic song, too, because it's one of the simplest songs in the world. <laughs> There are actually only three chords in the song, three different chords. That's why it became so many people's first song. So many musicians, so many guitar players and so forth. The first song that many of them ever learned was Jamaica Farewell because there was only the one, four, five chord. There was only three chords in the whole song. <laughs> so, of course, it didn't hurt the song at all because it became Harry Belafonte's theme song. And he used it in all of his shows, you know, to open up all of his shows. How did you become inspired to write it? I don't know. I, I was just thinking of having... It's a part of the creative process. You take your image of something, and you see, see what you can do with it. I guess there's no two people that do the same thing. that would do the same thing alike. That's just my brand, my interpretation. 
Um, my interest, my projection, that's the way life is. Yeah, it's a song that makes people happy and it tells a good story. Yeah, it does. It paints the picture. A lot of the listeners out there may not know that in the Calypso world, it's not unusual to use the title of Lord or Mighty. For example, Lord Melody, Lord Invader, the Mighty right. Sparrow, all those Calypsonians. How did you come upon the name Lord Burgess? It was first given to me by Max Gordon, who was the owner of the Vanguard restaurant in New York, which was my first appearance in New York after I'd come from Chicago. He sort of bestowed that name on me, <laughs> and, I, and, and it just stuck, you know. I guess it's like a pun on Burgie. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Not many people can say that they wrote the national anthem of a country. It must be an extreme pleasure of yours and something you're very proud of. I know that your ancestry is from Barbados, and in 1966, the National Anthem of Barbados, written by Irving Burgey. I was extremely proud of that, and quite an honor. Do you go to Barbados ever? Everybody Barbados knows me. I go there about at least three times a year. I have a, uh, a literary prize that I give in Barbados that I've been doing for 28 years, and I've been involved with several different projects in Barbados. So I'm quite well known there, of course. I hope to make it down there sometime. <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful country. You need to go down. <laughs> Maybe someday. Very good. Beautiful. This is Irving Berge speaking, and this is Time After Island Time. So tell us about your autobiography. This autobiography is called Deo, an autobiography of Irving Burgey, and it's won a lot of praise from people like Sidney Portier, Whoopi Goldberg, and yours truly. I liked the book a lot. I read the book in about two days. I enjoyed it. You really made things interesting. So tell us about how you got inspired to tell your story. Well, I started writing an autobiography of my life around 25 years ago. And then I got to about the age 18 in my autobiography, and I stopped. And I didn't go back to it until about four years ago. Me and my, my wife assisted me as an editor, and we were able to get the book out uh, last year. It was great fun writing the book, the changes and uh, adjustments and so forth. It, it was really a, a, a wonderful thing to be able to tackle to tell your life story, especially when it was it was a successful thing. It was an exciting work which we all we all loved doing. And it's such an inspiring story. When I was reading it, I remember feeling inspired. It gave me a lot of, of energy and and feelings about going out and, and keeping at my goals. So I was hoping you could tell us what is the secret to success? Oh <laughs> If I knew that, I'd, I'd have to hide. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that that is still an unknown fact. <laughs> no. but I would suggest that preparation helps. You know, that's the way I went. Preparation and determination are the are the two things that you have, and that has to be supplied by you, of course. I think my favorite song that you wrote, and it was also covered by Harry Belafonte on the Calypso album, is the song, I Do Adore Her. Oh, yes, one of my real favorites. A lovely song. Tell me about how you got the inspiration behind that song. 
I was just fishing. I just sort of fishing around one day for an idea, and it just it just sort of. Uh, I really can't explain it. I just it, it's a sort of a romantic kind of thing. I'm a romantic anyway. <laughs> you know, the romantic is the guy who never gets the girl. You know, he loves deeply. That's what romance is. Romance is seeing something or perceiving something and moving toward it. It's just like having a girlfriend. You talk to her and you court her and you take her out and things like that. And you, But the first time that you kiss her, that's the, the beginning of the end of the romance. You see, because then it becomes something else. You see, it becomes physical. You see, romance is, it can only really be in your mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. If it's an image that you have of something. For instance, if you're engaged, once you marry the person, you're, it's no longer a romance. <laughs> and and that's, that may be a hard fact for so many of our listeners to accept. <laughs> no, no, it can become something else, but it's not a romance any longer. Because you, you have achieved something. You have moved into another stage. A romance is basically spiritual. One of the great romantic figures in our history is Don Quixote. You know, he imagines all of this stuff. Right. <laughs> but a lot of people don't really understand what romance really is. But I, I consider myself uh, rather romantic. <laughs> Moving along from romance to another topic that interests everyone, food. I noticed, uh, this may sound like a curious thing to talk about, but I noticed you mentioned curry a lot in your songs. And I happen to be a devotee of curry. For example, you have this song that is on your album, The Father of Modern Calypso. Oh yeah, well curry is a staple in the West Indies, very, very popular. The, and it actually, it originally comes from India. And, and of course, uh, the Indians came from India and settled in the West, all over the West Indies too. And one of the staples that they bought was, was curry. And it still persists to, until this day. It's a sort of an unusual flavor, but you can develop a, a nice taste for it. A nice curry. Uh, curry rice or curry shrimp or curry whatever can be very nice. Curry goat. Like the song, do you like curry so much that this inspired the song? Well, I would think so. I would think so. I like curry. I, it's a very good flavor and a very pleasing flavor in its own right. And I just wrote about it. Right. Because <laughs> in the song, I, I make it a sort of a comedy because this guy has a sort of a fanatical <laughs> urge to, uh, to eat this curry as much as he can. You know, I'm sort of lording with Curry. Well, I understand. So tell us, one of the other groups that's covered you, in addition to Harry Belafonte, is the Kingston Trio. During my heyday, the Kingston Trio came out. I think when I came back from a trip, they contacted me, and I, I had written some songs while I was traveling. And over the next two or three years, I did three songs for them. One of them was El Matador, and one was a song called The Seine, which, which was after the Seine River in, in Paris. And another one was called The Wanderer. And that was during the time when, when, when the Kings Drew, when they come out with an album, 
it was it was several million albums before it even came out. You know, <laughs> it was so hot at that time. Yeah. Out of curiosity, do you still write songs at all? I've been really rewriting, not not really writing. My catalog is held up pretty well, and I'm not that strongly inspired to create at this particular time. But I guess if I had to, I would. But I, at this point, I'm not really driven to do this. And I think that any really creative writing, sometimes you have to be sort of at least halfway driven to it, you know? Right. It, has a, it requires a certain kind of drive and inspiration that makes you, makes you think. To motivate you. Yeah, right. Motivating factors. Do you still keep in touch with Harry Belafonte? Not really. We bump into each other. We never really sort of hung out with each other, even when we were working right. together. We see each other, we say hi, but uh, we, we we don't really hang out. No. No, not at all. I was wondering if you could tell us, given all these experiences in your life, what has been the best experience of your life? I've had a lot of experiences, but I, I would think that the one million albums comes number one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't know, do that every day. <laughs> that's that's true. But the odd thing about it was the very fact that it was the first big thing that I'd ever done in my life. Struck goal on, on the first shot, which is on, which is very very unusual. Like I said, everyone needs to read the book because it, it is a fascinating story. What is it that you hope people get? out of your songs when they hear your music either performed or on a record? I guess pleasant feelings. I hope that uh, some of it can be thoughtful. I think some of some of the lyrics are, are very well done and are very interesting and they tell the story. I guess that's about it. That's what I can say about it. <laughs> tell us about the song that you wrote Island in the Sun. After the success of the first album, I was asked by Harry to, to write songs for a upcoming film, which was called Island in the Sun. It was a film that was made from a book by the British writer Alec Waugh called Island in the Sun. It was, it was a fictitious island of Santa Maria, but it was actually about labor strife and race relations in, in Jamaica or the West Indies. It was during the very early stages of the, of the civil rights movement. And so Belafonte was very hot at that time because in this story, Ireland and the Sun, Harry Belafonte was coupled with Joan Fontaine, who was a leading white actress at the time. It had been for years. It stirred up quite a controversy, but Dal Zanuck was, was a controversial kind of fellow. And he said that he was going to uh, make this film. And then and a lot of people said they were going to burn down the theaters and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Picture was made, and um, it stirred up a bit of controversy. The color in the film was, was beautiful. It was beautifully done, showing off the islands. It was also at the time when they, they began marketing American films, generally speaking, in abroad. That's what Sanic said. He said, yeah, there may be parts of the country that might rule this out, but... Um, but I'm going to send this picture abroad, and that's what he did. And he ended up, he did make money on the film. And, of course, the island and the sun was beautifully exposed, 
and it practically became an unofficial national anthem of many of the islands in the Caribbean. Out of all these songs that you wrote, you mentioned that you really like the song, I Do Adore Her, and I really like that song, too. But what would you say is your favorite song, if you could pick one? That would be very difficult. But I would think because of the reverence that it, that it holds, particularly in the Caribbean, among the people of the Caribbean, I would say Island in the Sun. I could see that. That song is a song that, when you hear it, you definitely feel something emotionally. It's a meaningful song. Yes. Well, Mr. Burgey, I've enjoyed very much speaking to you. Before you go, I was hoping you could tell everyone out there, since this program is being listened to by people all over the world, what would you, Mr. Irving Burgey, known to the world as Lord Burgess, like to say to the world? I hope you're enjoying my songs. <laughs> Keep listening. <laughs> and I think the fact that... Thank you for listening up to now. <laughs> I think the fact that these songs have stuck around for this long means that the answer to keep listening is yes, they are. <laughs> so it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, dock, ooh, no, I just get up, I just like a pom, tom, cook, it's a Goodbye.